passage from Acts 15 was read for the purpose of recognizing that some questions require some um, deeper and further consideration. Sometimes some of the questions that we will consider have, for instance, some very serious impact on our living a Christian life. But I will tell you that we ought to be a seeking kind of people. We ought to be the kind of people who are constantly asking ourselves questions. What does God's Word teach on this topic? What does it teach on another topic? We ought to be looking at passages of Scripture and not only saying, what does this passage teach, but how should I apply this in my everyday walk of life? But I will also tell you that when you and I approach the Scriptures, we've got to learn to be honest to be fair-minded with God's Word. In John chapter 5, Jesus was dealing with Jews who didn't really believe that He was the Christ. And He said to them, You search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of Me. Recognizing that sometimes our prejudices and our preconceived notions can affect what we believe and what we might practice. We ought to be like the people of Berea. These were more fair-minded. I like the translation noble better, literally of good birth. We're more noble. They were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. I encourage you to look at every question that we deal with, every topic, and to make sure that you take your own Bible and say, that's what it teaches, and see it for yourselves. When we do our questions and answers, there are three types that I have constantly tried to remind us to understand. There are those that are textual, and tonight we will be dealing with two textual questions questions. There are also topical questions, and tonight's lesson does, at least in some ways, not only deal with the textual, but it deals with the topical and then the practical. How do we apply something that we learn in God's Word? And so let's begin tonight, and question number one is one I cannot remember who gave it to me, and that's not important. Uh, It's one of those that was scratched out on a little piece of paper and handed to me, and I stuck in my pocket. It was there for some time, but it's the question asked, does Deuteronomy chapter 14 verse 26 justify social drinking? And uh, let me begin by reading to you Deuteronomy chapter 14 verse 26. And you shall spend that money for whatever your heart desires. For oxen or sheep, for wine or similar drink, for whatever your heart desires, you shall eat there before the Lord your God. You shall rejoice, you and your household. Now, uh, many would say, here it is. There's a passage which says, you can drink your wine, you can enjoy it. And so you and your household enjoy your social drinking. Let me begin by pointing out to you that there's always people who want to justify that which they want to practice and they're in search of it as they go throughout the Bible. 
and they can find people who will say, yes, that's what it says. You remember 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul says, I charge you before the Lord and Jesus Christ who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing in kingdom, preach the word. Be instant, in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But having itching ears, they will heap themselves teachers after their own lust and be turned aside to fables. There are people who will preach what you want preached. Isaiah 28 and verse 7 talked about these kind of people. He says, but they have also erred through wine and through intoxicating drink are out of the way. The priest and the prophet have erred through intoxicating drink. They're swallowed up by wine. They're out of the way through intoxicating drink. They err in vision. They stumble in judgment. He's talking about people who are under the influence and it's not just the common people. He's talking about the prophet and the priest. When Micah wrote in chapter 2 and verse 11, if a man should walk in a false spirit and speak a lie, saying, I will prophesy to you of wine and drink, even he would be a prattler of this people. Some people would rather the preacher lie to them, tell them it's okay. Well, tonight, here's what I want us to do. I want us to be honest. I want us to be fair. I want us to do a good job of studying God's Word. And so we're going to look at three things. We're going to look at the context That's so important in this case. Number two, we're going to look at the concession that was the part behind this. And there was a reason for all of this. And then finally, to look at the consumption. How did this drink, how was it consumed? So let's begin, first of all, by looking at the context. And so if you'll open your Bibles, I'm not going to be able to look at every detail. So you're really going to need to see some of this yourself. But you go back up just a few verses to verse 22 and notice what it is that Moses is speaking of. You shall truly tithe all the increase of your grain that the field produces year by year. Now, if you'll pause with me for just a minute to think about that word tithe, it meant the 10%. And he says you will tithe the increase of your grain. So if you produced 100 bushels of corn, you owed the Lord as a part of your tithe 10 bushels of corn. You think about that for just a moment. Year by year, every year that comes along, you owe the Lord that amount. Now, where did that go? Did you just find someone down the street and say, okay, this is my tithe, I'm going to give it to you? No, it was God's design to give to the Levite slash priest. If you'll remember, all of the tribes of Israel were given a land inheritance. But the tribe of Levi did not get a land inheritance. And so God designed that they would get the tithe as payment for their services of doing the religious work. In Leviticus chapter 27, look at verse 30 and 32. And all the tithe of the land 
whether of the seed of the land or the fruit of the trees, is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord, verse 32. And concerning the tithe of the herd or the flock of whatever passes under the rod, the tenth one shall be holy to the Lord. Numbers 18.26 says, Speak to the Levites and say to them, When you take from the children of Israel the tithes which I have given to you from them as your inheritance. I don't think you can get any clearer than that. It was their inheritance. But the last part of that verse makes it clear that not only do the Levites receive tithes from the other tribes, but they themselves pay tithes as well. You see, no one was excused from giving a portion, in fact, a 10% to the Lord. But where was this given? Did you find a Levite who happened to be traveling down the road and say, you come here just a minute, I've got my 10% and I want to give it to you. No, that's not the way it was handled. It was taken to Jerusalem after God put the temple there. Prior to that, it was wherever the tabernacle was located. Could have been at Shiloh, could have been at other places, but that's where they carried their tithes. Deuteronomy chapter 12, verses 5 through 7. But you shall seek the place where the Lord your God chooses out of all your tribes to put his name there for his dwelling place, and there you shall go. There you shall take your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, your heave offerings of your hands, vowed offerings, your free will offerings, the firstborns of your herds and your flocks. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice in all which you have put your hand, you and your households, in which the Lord your God has blessed you. So what do you do? You go to Jerusalem. You go to a place that God has chosen. Now, I want to be a little more specific. In fact, I'm going to skip this verse for right now. I'm going to come back to it later. Because you have to realize that God made a concession for some of these people. And you say, what is a concession? That's where God allows them to do it a little differently than the text actually read. Now, let me explain that to you. I want you to imagine traveling with 10% of your grain, 10% of your flocks, 10% of your herds, 10% of your vintage, 10% of everything that you've earned in the past year. You just imagine, those of you who are farmers... You go out and you pick your peas, you go out and you pick your corn, you go out and pick your tomatoes, you go out and pick all this. Now you imagine 10% of that, and then you've got your animals. For every 10 cattle, you had to give a, a cow. For every 10 of the flock, you had to give one of the flock. And as that number grew during, during that period of time, imagine going from Dan up in the top all the way down to Jerusalem. That's a long journey. So God made a concession. And that concession was they were allowed to sell what they had given to the Lord and then take that money, they go to Jerusalem, and there they buy what it is that they need to offer to the Lord. Now, notice carefully verse 25. This is the verse that precedes verse 26. Then you shall exchange it for money. Take the money in your hand. Go to the place which the Lord your God chooses. Now, when I go to the New Testament, I can see that illustrated. 
If you go to John chapter 2, right after the Lord began his personal ministry, he goes up to Jerusalem and it's the Passover. This is a time which many of the people are going to be bringing their sacrifices. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem and he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. I want you to imagine what is taking place here. These people who lived far off, some of them may even live in other countries now, they bring their money and they're wanting to buy oxen to offer as a sacrifice. They're wanting to buy other things. Of course, God intended that that take place, but not in the temple. They had moved their wares, their selling, to right inside the temple where people were supposed to be praying and worshiping. That's the reason why verse 15, he makes a whip of cords and he drove them out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the money changer, changer's money and overturned their tables. And he said to them who sold doves, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. It wasn't intended for that purpose. It was a place of prayer. Now let me look at the third part of this. We've looked at the context. We've looked at the concession that was made. Let's talk about the consumption of this drink. What happened to the sacrifices that were offered? When you brought your tithe, what did you do with it? Well, you, if you've exchanged it for money, as Deuteronomy 14.25 says, you've come and now you've bought oxen. You've bought lambs, you've bought grain, and you've brought vintage. And what are you going to do with it? Well, normally, part of it will be burned on the altar as a burnt offering. Not all of it, but a, a symbolic portion. Part of it was given to the priest that they would eat in that portion there, but it was not a full meal, it was symbolic. Part of it was eaten by the worshiper. Just like this morning when we assembled together around the Lord's table. We didn't eat a full meal. The bread that you took was only a small portion because it was symbolic to say that I am participating in the body and the blood of the Lord. When a sacrifice was brought and it was sacrificed, yes, you may would take a portion of it, but wasn't to fill a meal, but it was a part of a symbolic participation in the offering. Some things could be consumed at home, but others could not. Now I want you to notice, I'm going to go back to Deuteronomy 12, a passage I skipped just a few moments ago. Let's look at verse 17 and 18 and verse 26. You may not eat within your gates the tithe of your grain, your new wine, your oil, the firstborn of your flock or herd or flock, or of any of the offerings which you vow of freewill offerings, or of the heave offerings of your hand. But you must eat them before the Lord your God in the place which the Lord your God chooses. You, your son, your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, and the Levite who is within your gates, you shall rejoice before the Lord your God in all the things to which you put your hands. How do I know they're not going to consume all of it? Can you imagine you had a bumper crop and this year you've got five oxen, you're going to bring five oxen, you're going to eat all five of them there? No, that wasn't intended. Verse 26, 
only the holy things which you have and your vowed offerings you shall take and go to the place which the Lord chooses. When it's holy things, you've got to take them with you. Now the key question, the question that comes up now, having seen the context, understanding the concession that was made, and now the consumption of it is, did they consume and enjoy the wine and strong drink? In other words, did they have a party with the wine when they got there and drank the wine and ate the food and had a good time with it? Well, let's notice what Scripture says. Drink offerings were poured out. Let that sink in. Drink offerings were poured out. Numbers 28, 7. And the drink offering shall be one-fourth of a hen for each lamb in a holy place. You shall pour out the drink to the Lord as an offering. You see, if you'll notice very carefully, and you're reading this very carefully, a fourth of the hen for each lamb. There's an association with this drink offering to be attached with an animal, and the drink offering represents the blood. One of the best sets of comments I can find was from the Zondervan Pictorial Bible Encyclopedia. And the article on drink offering, here's what it says, a portion that is applicable to this. It says, a libation normally accompanied burnt and peace offerings, refers to Numbers 15. The standard was a fourth a hen for a lamb, third for a ram, a half for a bull. The expression strong drink used with reference to the drink offering is apparently only a synonym for wine. The use of wine was probably a conscious substitute for the blood used by the heathen. The libation was considered as an additional pleasing odor offering like the burnt offering. Now listen carefully. All was expended. Nothing was given to the priest. The entire libation was poured out in the sanctuary. So you mean that what they do, they take that drink offering and they sell what they have and they bring and they come and they buy. But when they buy, what are they doing with it? Are they drinking it themselves? No, they're not. They're carrying it to the Lord as a drink offering and that whole amount is poured out there on the altar. They did not drink the wine or the strong drink it was fully and completely poured out in the sacrifice. Now, if you need further proof, it could not be consumed by the priest either. Because if I go to Leviticus chapter 10 and verse 9, do not drink wine or intoxicating drink, you or your sons with you, when you go into the tabernacle of meeting, lest you die. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. Deuteronomy 29.6 you have not eaten bread, nor have you drunk wine or similar drink, that you may know that I am the Lord your God. I don't think you can make it any plainer than what is clearly revealed in the Scriptures. Deuteronomy 14.26 does not justify social drinking. It was talking about the sacrifices which were poured out 
as a drink offering to the Lord. Second question. What is the gift of the Holy Spirit in Acts 2 and verse 38? I've been asked that question probably at least two dozen times or more. And uh, this is a question that will be asked and answered again. Not necessarily by me, but by others. Let me go to Acts 2 and verse 38 and let's read it together. Then Peter said to them, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, here's what approach we're going to follow. We're going to look at the conceivable positions. What could it mean? Then we're going to look at the context of the passage and then finally to try to draw some conclusions based upon that. First of all, there are four major views that are given with regards to the meaning of the gift of the Holy Spirit. And these four views come under two different categories. The first is the gift of the Holy Spirit that the Spirit gives Himself. That the Spirit Himself is the gift. And of that, there are two views. Number one, it means a miraculous indwelling. That the gift of the Holy Spirit means that a miraculous indwelling is going to take place and will be a sign of everyone who is a Christian. Another view is that it is the personal indwelling, but it's not miraculous. The other view is that it is a gift given by the Spirit. And of that, some believe that it is salvation and others believe that it is a spiritual gift. And what I'm going to do is we're going to go through these and look at them and see what they might mean. First of all, the miraculous indwelling. This is a view that the Spirit is given to everyone who becomes a Christian, and because a person is a Christian, they're going to be able to work miracles. If you've ever met a Pentecostal, and you talk with them and you say How do you know you're a Christian? Oh, the Holy Spirit came upon me and I was able to speak in tongues. And they will say that is a mark or a measure to tell you that you are now saved because the Holy Spirit came in you and you can work these miracles. I've actually discussed this with people who believe that. There's problems with this view. Among those is the fact that there's a figure of speech called a metonymy, which means that you put what is giving for the gift that they give, and I believe that's the case here. But the other problem is that when you go to the Bible, the miraculous gifts were intended to cease. And if it was a sign of salvation, once the miraculous gifts would mean that nobody could be saved. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 8, Love never fails, but where there be prophecies, they'll fail. Where there are tongues, they'll cease. Where there's knowledge, it'll vanish away. We know in part and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect has come, that which is in part shall be done away. So we recognize that cannot be true. The second one is that this refers to a non-miraculous personal indwelling that the Holy Spirit comes and dwells in us personally. And this is probably the most common view among our brethren. Uh, Brother Wayne Jackson holds this view. Brother Gus Nichols held this view. Many others. I could give you a lot of other names of people who did it. But they suggest that the Holy Spirit 
indwells the body of every Christian when he is baptized. That when you become a Christian, then the Holy Spirit comes in you. How do you know that? My former teachers used to say the only way you know it is because the Bible tells you so. Otherwise, you wouldn't know it. You wouldn't feel it. But they believe that that is an incentive to not sin because the Holy Spirit dwells in you. The text that they would refer to is Acts 5, verse 32. And we're witnesses to these things and also is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey Him. Romans 8 and 9, but you're not in the flesh but in the Spirit if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, who you have from God, and you are not your own? I again would remind you that the word metonymy would come into play here. And uh, there are those who believe this. And as long as a person does not have the Holy Spirit doing some sort of miraculous work or enlightening or enabling people to do things separate and apart from the Word, I don't know that I would find fault with this view other than the fact that I don't believe that's exactly what the Scriptures teach. The second two is to look at the gift of the Holy Spirit as something the Holy Spirit gives. And the first of those is that the Holy Spirit gives salvation. And this is a very popular view also held by many good brethren. I have several good friends here in Warren County who hold this view and um, I don't necessarily think it's the correct one, but I'm not going to fall out with them because of it. The emphasis is that the gift that the Spirit gives is to the one who has repented and been baptized, and thus the gift that they get is salvation. If you go to Ephesians 2 and verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. And they would say, see, salvation is what God gives you. In Romans 6 and verse 23, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. But I would point out that you look in that passage, Repent and let every one of you be baptized. The word and is a coordinating conjunction, joining together two clauses. For the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Using the word and again indicates that it is two different things. And so if it were salvation, you would have it being redundant here. The fourth view is that it is the spiritual gifts. And the gifts were imparted by the laying on of the apostles' hands. Acts 8 verse 18 says... And when Simon saw that through the laying on of the hands the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money. And there's a strong correlation throughout the Bible between the giving of gifts from the Spirit and the salvation that is promised. Like, for instance, Ephesians 4.8, Therefore, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. That context is clearly the miraculous gifts. Second. Timothy 1 and verse 6, Paul says, to, I remind you to stir up the gift of God which was given through the laying on of my hands. Or Acts 8.20 again, Peter said, Your money perished with you because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. 1 Corinthians 12.7, obviously talking about the miraculous gifts, 
But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. It's something that is given. Well, many would say, but in Acts 2, it's not obvious that everyone received these miraculous gifts. So what that does is, to me, that drives me to look and see what the context is saying. And to do that, you've got to go back earlier in Acts chapter 2 and see the apostles after the Holy Spirit came upon them and they began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them ability, utterance. What would the original hearers of Peter's sermon understood? Because he's speaking to them. He's saying they've asked what they should do. Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What did they expect to receive? Well, as you look at the verses that precede verse 38, you can back all the way up to verse 5 and notice the beginning of this message. It really begins in earnest around verse 17. But I want to particularly note verses 16 through 18. Peter says, but this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it's come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit. On all flesh, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and my maid servants, I will pour out my spirits in those days. My spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. You see, Peter talked about what Joel had prophesied would come in the last days, and he was saying these are the last days. What you see us doing. Is what was prophesied. But notice, I'm going to pour it out on my sons and my daughters, my servants, my handmaids. In other words, it's not going to be regardless of, of a particular class of people or particular gender of people. It was going to be poured out on all men. And then when you look at verse 21, and it shall come to pass, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. He ties together all these miraculous things and how it brings them to a knowledge of God and how that brings about the salvation of all people. Well, I've tried to move through this swiftly. Some questions may be interesting but not effectful in salvation. There's two or three views with regards to the gift of the Holy Spirit that I believe that you could hold and not be in gross error but there are some things on the other hand that may affect one's behavior that could result in sin if a person looks at Deuteronomy 14 and verse 26 and says you know what that says I can drink and a man goes out and he says okay I'm going to get drunk and God condemns that drunkenness that can affect his salvation Faithfulness to God requires that one search for the truth and then practice the truth. And that's the same in regard to every question that man might ask. Whether it's the question of what can I do in religion or what must I do to be saved. I don't want to encourage people to obey the gospel because the preacher tells them that's what they ought to do. I don't want to encourage somebody to obey the gospel because their boyfriend, their girlfriend is urging them, okay, you need to be baptized. 
I want people to open their Bibles and see that you have to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. John 8 and verse 24. I want people to see they've got to repent. They've got to change their heart. They've got to change their ways. Luke 13, verses 3 and 5. Acts 17, verse 30. To confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, as the eunuch did in Acts 8. And then to be baptized, as Acts 2, verse 38 teaches. You do that because you see that's what the Scriptures teach. And it's possible tonight that we've got someone here who's been thinking in their mind, this is something I need to do. I know that preacher who's been preaching on that same subject week after week, month after month, year after year. And yes, that's true. But when you know that you need to do it, that's the time. And it's possible that you as a Christian is struggling with sin in your life. And if it is, that's why we're here. Pray for one another, to encourage one another. If you need to respond to the Lord's invitation, would you come as we stand and sing?